0: This is episode 17 of Cinescope, and everybody who reads comic books knows that the Kirby Silver Surfer is the only true Silver Surfer. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Francisco Ruiz to talk about one of his favorite films, Crimson Tide. Francisco, how are you doing? I'm doing
1: quite well. Go Bama.
0: Um, I don't know about that. Texas Tech. <laughs> Reckham over here. but
1: uh, <laughs> I meant the submarine. The submarine. Of-, of course, the submarine. I'll- I'll- I can get behind that. <laughs> Um, How about you introduce yourself? Uh, My name is Francisco Ruiz, as Chad said. I'm a web and graphic designer by trade. Uh, I'm also a uh, husband and father to two kids, Um, and I'm the host of, one of the hosts, of the Retro Rewind podcast, Uh, and that's where we, essentially what we do is we rewatch and replay movies and video games from 15 or more years ago, and we rate whether they're still worth watching today or whether you should just like leave them alone so that's that's what we do over there
0: well very cool i have admittedly haven't checked out your podcast much yet what? i i, I'm I know Sorry. i know Sorry. i know um <laughs> okay. but i i have looked through and you've got a, a fun list of movies you've been going for what Thank you. three almost four years now
1: Four years. Yeah, we just we did our 100th episode and that was our pseudo four year anniversary. Our true four year anniversary is, let's see, I don't know, 104 or something like that. But uh, yeah, we've been going for four years. We record we release an episode every other week. So that's why it took us longer than maybe like your podcast. We'll probably get to 102 years. But congrats on the, the
0: anniversary upcoming.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Like I said, I plan on listening to your show, but uh, <laughs> producing this one and then listening to Bukus and Bukus of others, I get behind. And so I will definitely get around
1: to yours eventually. And I'm excited too. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And that's why I love podcasts. I mean, ever since I started listening back in 06, it's like, wow. I Like I hate whenever there's a morning show on the radio and I had to like, I, if I... It was late to work. I couldn't finish whatever segment it was. But podcasts, oh, I just pause it. I come back and I don't miss anything. I
0: love that. Exactly. And get to have so many fun conversations over things we love. So yeah, I'm excited to check that out. Hopefully, everybody else will head over to your show, Retro Rewind podcast as well. And uh, we'll continue the conversation on multiple podcasts. So just a quick reminder to everybody before we move on. Please go to iTunes, rate, review, subscribe. Do that for my show. Do that for Francisco's show because it helps us no matter what. It is such a big help to us in boosting numbers and listeners and helping us to just grow. So please just take a couple minutes out of your day. Head over to iTunes and help us out. We'd much appreciate it. And with that, I'm ready to talk about this movie. How about you, Francisco?
1: Roll Tide!
0: (laughs) Okay, I'll take that as a yes. So we are talking about Crimson Tide today, which was released on May 12th of 1995 and was directed by Tony Scott, who also directed The Hunger, Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 2, True Romance, Spy Game, and Unstoppable. It was written by Michael Schiffler, but also had some uh, uncredited additions by Quentin Tarantino, mostly the pop culture references and humor and that kind of stuff. Into the script. So there are definitely some Tarantinoisms in here, I would say.
1: Yes, definitely. Like, oh, all those F words. So.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, that's probably a big part of him, too. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, the music was composed by Hans Zimmer, who composed the score for The Lion King. And I wrote here the first four parts of the Caribbean movies. And we addressed this personally. You, you said, you know, he didn't technically write the score for the first parts of the Caribbean movie. And you're absolutely correct. That score is credited to Klaus Badelt. But mm-hmm. Hans Zimmer was very much involved and actually composed three or four of the main themes for that mm-hmm. film. So very much involved from the, from the beginning. But you are absolutely correct when you address that to me in our little <laughs> email chat. Uh, That is Klaus Badet's film. I'm actually not very familiar with Klaus Badelt outside of Pirates of the Caribbean 1, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. I I don't know what he's up to nowadays or what he's done in the time since, but Hans Zimmer is definitely the name that sticks. Oh, yes, definitely. So Hans Zimmer also composed the scores for Gladiator, The Last Samurai, The Dark Knight Trilogy, and Interstellar, plus several other films. There's just too many to list when it comes to Mr. Zimmer. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this movie stars Denzel Washington, Gene Hackman, George Zunza, Viggo Mortensen, James Gandolfini, and Matt Craven. So what was your first experience with this movie?
1: So uh, let's see. My A little bit of background. My mom was in the Air Force, and uh, she was stationed at the time that this came out at Vandenberg Air Force Base, which is in California. Some people will say it's Central California, but it's much more like it's still Southern California near Santa Barbara. And uh, in between the base and the nearest city, which is Lompoc, there's there was unfortunately not. It's a recycling center now, but there was a drive-in theater called the Valley Drive-in. Uh, so uh, my mom took me and my brothers to go see. They usually I had double features, and Crimson Tide, I think, was the second movie. Uh, so my brothers had fallen asleep, I think, for this after the first movie. But me and my mom were just totally. Riveted as we watched *Crimson Tide*, and even as like a almost fourteen year old, I really enjoyed it. I think my mom did too. Uh, We usually talked about movies and other stuff, but uh, on the ride home, the thing I remember most distinctly was she said, "Yeah, communications really everything." (laughs) And she was she's very much she worked on satellites, so that was very apropos of her to say. But Uh uh, that's that that was my initial experience with watching *Crimson Tide*.
0: Well, my initial experience with watching this movie was earlier this afternoon when I (laughs) brought it up on my Apple TV. Um, So (laughs) I wasn't very familiar with this film. And, you know, I I, I kept a list here. I've seen many Denzel Washington films, so I knew Mm -hmm. how fantastic he would be. I had expectations Mm. for him, of course. I could count the number of Viggo Mortensen films I've seen on Three Fingers. Three guesses mm. <laughs> what those three films are.
1: <laughs> History of violence. and uh, no, no.
0: Oh, yes, of course. Lord of the Rings trilogy. <laughs> yes, of course. yes, yes. And uh, the only other Tony Scott film I had seen was Top Gun. And, you know, Top Gun, yes. I like it. I think it's a fun 80s film. I mean, you, you get what you basically see in the trailers. I mean, it's lots of mm-hmm. cool air action, lots of Tom Cruise being Tom Cruise. I mean, it's a fun movie. And I enjoy it for that reason. But, you know, Mm -hmm. there's really not a whole lot of extra stuff to that movie. It's face value. And that's what it's for. And that's great. That's okay with me. I like it. I feel the need. The need for speed. Exactly. (laughs) And so I I do like that movie. And so Mm -hmm. that was my only Tony Scott experience. And then, of course, I am very familiar with Hans Zimmer. And this is semi-early Hans Zimmer. And so mm-hmm. I had a, a sort of expectation as to what I would hear on that side of things. And mm. I would say all of my expectations are met. And I was actually really impressed with how much I enjoyed this movie. Because, oh, cool. I mean, it's a submarine movie for one. And yes. submarine movies are very specific in what they're trying to make you experience. And that's like this intense claustrophobia and this Mm -hmm. inability to escape situations. Mm -hmm. And uh, we get a lot of that in this movie. And Mm -hmm. there's also, and for those of you who follow the podcast on Twitter or follow me on Twitter, you saw that I was talking about how I was writing my notes earlier today. And I was laughing at myself because I was making puns. And here's where the pun comes in. (laughs) There's a lot of depth to this movie. And so, and I, I do mean that. I mean, there there is a lot of depth to this movie. You get discussions and questions on race relations and on nuclear warfare and on mm-hmm. protocol versus morality or right versus wrong. There's totally, these, yeah. these heavy concepts that are uh, struggled with in the mm-hmm. context of the film. And I really didn't expect that from a submarine movie from the director of Top Gun. Right. Like I said, from Top Gun, I mean, it's, it's basically a face value film, and that's what it's got going for it. It's fun for that reason. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. get Highway to the Danger Zone for 45 minutes plus out of the movie. That's what the movie is. It's it's Highway to the Danger Zone and planes. And that's exactly. cool.
1: Not just planes. F-14 Tomcats. Oh, yes. Yeah, so how could I forget?
0: <laughs> and so I, I really was impressed with the depth that this movie brought to the table. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh we, we could sort of use that to transition, I guess, into the story. what What about the story do you like here?
1: Well, I really appreciate I mean, so the conceit of the the story, how they set it up is that this rebel faction is rising up in Russia and threatens to is trying to steal uh, nuclear missile silos to launch at the u s and our allies. and though that's kind of a that fear of Russia, for one, but also rebels stealing nukes from within Russia it seems like less of a, a thing we fear today we're much more apt to fear terrorism in general but I feel like it still works as a very good plot device especially since Tony Scott uses a lot of real world footage uh, like you see President Clinton uh, in a little snippet and I, I feel like it really grounds them this movie and makes it feel like this could have happened almost like this could have been an alternate reality to our current reality Right. Um, so I, I really like that
0: yeah, they're they're not trying to fabricate history by putting real world leaders or turning real world leaders into the bad guys. They, they introduced this sort of side faction where they could unapologetically make them the bad guys yeah. and not really feel guilty about it because they're separate from the Russian government. So that is very smart on their part because it, it feels believable in this universe without sort of discrediting the Russian government in our real universe.
1: Exactly, exactly. You
0: know, I always like to talk about the mechanics of things on this show. When we talked about the Back to the Future, I talked about the mechanics of time travel. And I I just like picking apart the sort of the universes or the the protocol that is introduced to us in these films. And so Mm -hmm. in this one, I really liked the the mechanics of naval life. And so the chain of command was interesting to follow. And that's a big part of this movie is the chain of command. Mm -hmm. And then we get to see this long process for launch protocol for nuclear uh, nuclear missiles. Mm -hmm. And, it's it's a lengthy process, understandably, and it, it's really fascinating to see, okay, well, they've gotten the communication, now they take it to the captain to ask for permission to decode or whatever, mm-hmm. and so then they go through the process and they open the safe to get the decoding, and they decode it, and it's confirmed by another person, and it's confirmed by another person, and so there's this step-by-step-by-step process, and I'd like to believe most of that was at least authentic for the time.
1: Yeah, I would I would hope so too. That's one thing I was desperate to watch like a behind the scenes after I watched it this time, uh this past week because I want and typically they say, you know, how authentic stuff is and they they rarely come out and say, Oh, this was all Hollywood and made up but they'll if there is stuff that's authentic, they make they try to highlight that. So I wanted to find out more. I unfortunately couldn't find anything like that. But you brought up the all this protocol and that's something that I think in the wrong writer's hands could be so boring or the wrong filmmaker's hands could just be like, oh my gosh, why are you loading all this exposition on me? But the way Tony Scott and the the film writer, uh, the screenplay sets it up, I loved how they... Right before they introduce all these stages of doing a test for release of nuclear arms, they have this fire, this very high intense. Oh my gosh, there's a fire in the galley, and Denzel Washington's going in and being the only guy that can that can hit the button because all the other guys apparently don't know that this uh, CO2 button extinguisher is there. Uh, But he goes and presses (laughs) it, makes sure everyone's okay. Then right away, Gene Hackman wants to uh, run a drill because confusion on a ship is nothing to be feared, and so they go. So Denzel Washington goes back up, and it sets up. Not only you get to see the process for, okay, you have to look at these codes, you have to match the codes, you have to get of the emergency action message, you have to uh, go to the captain, get confirmation, but it also starts that setup of the conflict between uh, Denzel Washington's Hunter character and Commander Hunter and Gene Hackman's Captain Ramsey. I forgot to even put that in my notes, but I like that you touched on that whole protocol aspect of it.
0: Yeah, and it also gives them the opportunity Yes, it's showing the conflict between the two characters, but it's also showing how both of them can have legitimate points of view oh, that aren't necessarily wrong, where, I mean, we'll talk about this in more depth uh, later. <laughs> uh, that that word's going to keep coming
1: up, and I'm, I'm not going to apologize for it. <laughs> no, please don't. You, it takes me off guard. I'm like, I'm not expecting it, and I love puns, so please continue.
0: <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm with somebody who has a sense of humor. Good. But anyways... Denzel is trying to minimize the stress level on the ship, whereas Ramsey is Mm -hmm. not necessarily trying to increase the stress level. He's trying to catch them off guard. He's trying to catch them in a situation where they might be more in that situation, in a real-life combat situation for that testing scenario. So both of them have their points. Yeah, you might want to keep morale high, and you might want to let them perform a test when they're at their best. But also, I think there is merit to the idea that you might want to catch them off guard like they were in a real life scenario so that they are always going to be on their guard no matter what. They can't really be caught off guard because they're always on guard. Does that make sense?
1: Oh, yeah. You can't just fight battles when everything is hunky dory. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to, I like this movie. I'm probably going to quote it throughout this. So it works hopefully. for me. <laughs> 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 I mentioned
0: this earlier. I like the claustrophobia of the setting. Um, mm-hmm. it's very much like a space film in that regard. You know, when yes. I think of claustrophobia mm-hmm. in space, the first one that always comes to my mind nowadays is gravity for obvious reasons, oh, that's because one I
1: have not seen. So. Oh my but goodness. Go you, well, you, okay.
0: Yeah. okay. So you need to go see that <laughs> and, uh, but I, I won't spoil it, but a lot of that movie, you know, Stephen Price won the Academy award for his score for that film because he increased this, this level of claustrophobia and mm-hmm. making you uncomfortable and, there's that same sort of scenario here where they're in this situation. They can't escape from their stress. It's just different in terms of combat too, because, Mm -hmm. you know, looking at top gun, for example, combat is fast paced. You're dodging this way. You're dodging that way. You're going super duper fast. In this one, you're in this giant hunk of metal that can't move (laughs) very quick. I mean, it's like you might as well just be in like two potatoes and (laughs) moving them around a table because I mean, that's about as effective at actual legitimate combat. They are, But to Mm -hmm. this film's credit, those moments of combat, those couple moments of combat we see in the film are really well played up as far as building up the tension and building Mm -hmm. up your stress levels and making you really anxious in the situation because, hey, they can't escape from the situation. And if they get hit, well, they're going to die. And that's just the way it is. And so it's really well done in that regard. And that's like a staple of the sort of submarine film genre. And it doesn't really feel cliched here. I really do enjoy those combat scenes.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the things that I really appreciated how they depicted the naval submarine naval battles on screen here. It's yeah, it's absolutely tense. And I also like that they use those not just to highlight submarine action, which is is fun, right? <laughs> to look at. I'm sure it's highly, incredibly stressful to be in. Um. Uh, but But uh, fortunately, I haven't had to in a submarine uh, battle. But anyway, I digress. I really like how seeing it on screen shows a balance of... I think there's always this tension uh, between Ramsey and Hunter of like, okay, who's in the right, who's in the wrong? Well, maybe if one of them is incompetent, then that'll show who the person in the right is. But you see Ramsey handle the torpedoes well and the enemy sub well. You see Hunter actually be able to handle it and destroy it but get hit. So it's this constant balance of, uh, I mean, but I'm spoiling the end here, but they're both right and both wrong. I I don't know. Are they? The film is really good about letting You sort of decide that for yourself.
0: Right. And that was sort of my final point in my story section was that there's not a bad guy here. I mean, yes, the Russians or at least the Russian faction are the bad guys
1: technically, but if one Russian is killed, I will kill nine hundred thousand of them. Who is responsible?
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and we, so we got to watch out. They are the bad guys. They're they're going to kill lots of people, lots of Americans, but or lots of whoever's responsible is what he says. Yeah. But ultimately, the conflict here, there's there's an idea introduced early in the film that war is the ultimate enemy, and mm-hmm. this is something we'll talk about more later. But yes. the, the concept that Hunter is not bad, Ramsey. Though questionable at times is not bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. They both have right quote unquote viewpoints. And so it's ultimately up to us to decide who's in the right, who's in the wrong. Mm. And, uh, it's, I made this comparison while watching today. It's sort of like Marvel's Captain America Civil War where, oh, yeah. you know, both, That's both Captain America has a viewpoint. Iron Man has a viewpoint. Neither of them are wrong and they don't necessarily present a who's right scenario. Yeah. Um, we get a little bit more of an answer here, but still a lot of it is up to the audience to decide, okay, I side with this character because this, and I side with mm-hmm. this character because this. Mm-hmm. And so I really like that, that the conflict isn't that there's necessarily a true bad guy. It's the conflict is conflict, right?
1: Yeah. Conflict of philosophies, which right? again, if you, if you don't do it right, that could be highly boring. I would think to watch on screen, but tony Scott. Just totally does it really well, and I think it's it's interesting going back a little bit how you said that, like comparing this to Top Gun, which is all like woohoo, being a cowboy and up in the <laughs> air, um, right? Whereas this is much more like it takes a team, it takes tons of people to make these machines run, and you're all crammed together. And I think yeah, it is a lot more deliberate in how it goes about, and that. Tony Sky is able to bring that mentality of still this action and intense intensity to something that could be very mundane, as I mean, as mundane as war machines can get, but is amazing to
0: me. Right. Well, I mean, as far as like naval combat goes, this is probably the most boring form of it just because there's not a whole lot going on. You're underwater. You're not really mm-hmm. going anywhere. You're not going fast. And so the the interesting part of this situation is what's happening inside. And exactly, that's what this film yeah. does a great job of showcasing.
1: Mm-hmm. And it definitely, I think a lot hinges on the actors because we we really need to buy into what they're doing. I mean, since we can't see the outside, they really can't see the outside. We're mm-hmm. really just left to read their emotions on their faces. And I think I I can't think of one actor that I didn't think did that well. Right. And
0: well, speaking of actors, how about we transition into
1: characters? (laughs) Yeah, sounds good.
0: Okay. So, I mean, the obvious starter of this discussion is Hunter. And Hmm. I mean, I just want to start by saying it's another outstanding Denzel Washington performance. I don't know if I've ever seen a film with him in it in any capacity that I didn't enjoy just because mm. he always gives everything 110% into every single performance. I always buy into his character. I always buy into yep. his character's motivations and mm-hmm. that's not always easy in, mm. in situations where the, the, the leader is having to
1: make questionable decisions. Yeah. For me, I, I liked, I definitely liked Denzel Washington. I love, I love that he brought so much like higher level thought to this movie and it, it, it totally reads well. He totally delivers the lines as if he has been educated at Harvard. <laughs> Excuse right. me. Harvard. Um and <laughs> and you know, Naval Academy, et cetera, et cetera. But I also really enjoy Gene Hackman. I, I I I want at one point I'm gonna go back and like probably watch most of Gene Hackman's back catalog. I've seen him in Superman and I've seen him in Enemy of the State, uh another Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer production like Crimson Tide. So I've seen a lot of his more contemporary to me work, but I haven't seen like French Connection and a lot of his work that I think made him famous. And I'd love to go back and see that. But anyway, I digress. I, I really enjoyed Gene Hackman playing this almost Ahab character, but it's, it's an Ahab, I'd say, that's very attuned to This is the letter of the law. I'm going to follow this exactly. Nothing is going to dissuade me. This is what I know is right because this is what I was given. I think he performed that very admirably while also sort of maintaining this. I I could lose it almost at any minute, I felt.
0: There were times while watching where he reminded me of Nicholson in A Few Good Men.
1: Oh, yes, yes, yes. The sort of
0: character who's willing to bend the rules here and there in order to ultimately achieve what he believes is right. Um, Mm -hmm. admittedly, I've only seen a few good men once and it's been a little while, but that, that's sort of the connection that I made was, it was a very Mm -hmm. similar performance and they were actually released around the same time. I think I haven't seen a whole lot of Gene Hackman films. I think I've maybe seen the original Superman when I was Mm -hmm. a kid and I don't Mm -hmm. really remember much of that. And Mm -hmm. so this was like a fresh perspective on him as an actor and he's a great polar opposite. Of Denzel yes, in this film absolutely he's bullheaded he's strong-willed he's less inclined to maybe think entirely through a situation and at the same time he's not a bad guy he's not wrong he's a good man who is sometimes doing the wrong things for the right reasons like there's yeah. this one scene later in the film where he's holding a gun to a petty officer's head mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in order to persuade another person to do what he wants him to do yeah and i mean and that's not something that a captain of a ship really should be doing but i mean his motivation in that moment he is thinking oh crap the russians are about to fire on us it's our job to stop them so he's trying to find a means to an end and he just makes maybe a bad decision there in the moment and at the same time we we see the reason we see
1: why he's doing that because he is so strongly convicted exactly yeah that's the one I'd say that's the one moment where I think if he could become a bad guy, that would be that moment where right. he's willing to kill one of his crew pretty much just to – he's very much an ends, justifies the means type of guy in that moment. Right. But at the same time, you you can, I think, still sympathize with his motives. It's not like he wants to do it just because he has some like revenge vendetta against these rebels or anything like that. No, he's looking out for the best interests of his country. But so is Hunter, um, because he knows that if we're wrong, then they'll launch at us and uh, launch nukes at us. And it's it's like, okay, so but what if what? (laughs) Right. Just the mental acrobats that you have to go through and sort of playing out these scenarios is incredible. And I love that this film places them on you. We have talked about Hunter and Ramsey. I also like some of the uh, smaller characters like Ravetti, who's the sort of sonar uh, head. And I really just... I thought he was like the main comic relief in the movie. I believe he is played by Danny Nucci. And I really appreciated him and also the the bond that uh, him and Hunter formed because, just from your quote that you had about uh, Jack Kirby comics. I really... <laughs> I really right. <laughs> liked that aspect of their relationship and how Hunter was able to trust him and what came of that uh, trust.
0: Yeah, I liked him and I liked the other sort of side character who Hunter bonded with.
1: The the guy who was doing the radio?
0: Yeah, that was probably the guy who was fixing the radio. Oh, Vossler. Vossler, thank you. Yeah, having only watched this film once earlier today, I still have to learn my way around the names. But anyways, I like both of those characters because mm-hmm. of these Again, sort of probably thanks to Tarantino, pop culture bonds (laughs) that these guys form. You've got Mm -hmm. Hunter forming a bond with Ravetti over the comics. And Ravetti actually has his own sort of little enemy that gets to pay off later in the film. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That that (laughs) That conflict over the comics. But then Hunter also forms a bond with that other character, Vossler, over Star Trek. Mm
1: -hmm. And how
0: I'm Captain Kirk, you're Scotty, I need more energy.
1: He needs more and more warp speed.
0: And so there, there's those fun little bonds that are formed, and it it really just shows an effort that Hunter is, in the end, more compassionate mm-hmm. towards at least his crewmates and his oh, uh, yeah. peers, and mm-hmm. is more open to meeting their needs so that his needs are met, rather than it's sort of the other way around for Ramsey, where he is trying to meet his needs, and then the the crew's needs will be met once he's achieved what he wants. Right.
1: Well. For me, having having seen this many times, I I don't know. I think I'd give a little pushback to Ramsey wanting to achieve what he wants. I think he just, he's very much wanting to achieve what his orders are. He right, has these orders, right. and it's almost like he would be going against his honor and his, um, his duty to his country if he didn't go with those orders. And he's seen it from the aspect of, we're given these orders. If we don't do them, our country's going to be blown up. So why would we not do anything with these orders we've given, as opposed to him whining to just like, I need this because I want to be a good captain. I'm, I'm not saying that that's what you're saying. That's how I was hearing it.
0: I no, I, I definitely agree with you. I wasn't trying to insinuate that he was selfish, but it was definitely, he's just different than Hunter in that way where he, he doesn't necessarily put the the needs or the wants of the crew first. Whereas mm-hmm. Hunter mm-hmm. sort of wants his crew to be happy. He wants morale to be higher. Whereas mm-hmm. Ramsey just wants to get the job done. Does that make
1: sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Ramsey is like, keep your priorities, uh, right, your mission and your men. And it's almost like Hunter, his priorities would be his men and then his mission. Um, so I think that's sort of the the difference in thought. Uh, but speaking of Hunter, and you, I think you said perfectly that he's he definitely is much more compassionate. And I like that. We have these moments of like bringing it down to earth with comic books or Star Trek or TV references where it definitely humanizes this crew and the military, which I don't know your impressions of the military as a military brat. So I have a probably a higher regard for them than maybe some people do. But I like that you see that these are just other people and they're just as as Ramsey says, those men out there are just boys, boys trained to do a unspeakable thing. And the only guarantee they have that they're gonna do the proper thing is the unqualified belief in the unified chain of command. (laughs) Very nice. Great line. Thank (laughs) you. Because it's like, yeah, I mean, why should I trust you up there? I mean, have you ever dropped nukes on anyone? I mean, this is a crazy thing, but they just have to trust that their senior officers know better. And we find that some of them don't know better. Briefly,
0: we can talk about Viggo Mortensen. Unfortunately, he doesn't have a huge role. To, I mean, he does have a bigger part, but he's not like a main focus of this film, which was a little disappointing to me. But I thought what he was in was great. He First off, his look sort of threw me off because I'm used to Aragorn. Again, <laughs> yes. I can count the three films that I've seen on three fingers <laughs> with Viggo Mortensen. And so I, I don't have a lot of experience with him outside of that. But I, I mean, I've yeah. maybe seen screenshots of him from The Road or... Uh, sure. Captain Fantastic, which just came out this year, oh, stuff yeah. like that. And so I, I, I have a picture in my head of how Viggo Mortensen looks, and mm-hmm. it wasn't the way I pictured him in this. Here, yes. he almost has like... This is a weird comparison considering the Russians are the quote-unquote bad guys, but he almost looks like Drago from Rocky oh, Four. Rocky 4 He's got the... the <laughs> right? Am, am I, totally I wrong there? That. Yes. Yeah, no, he, no, no. He's, he's got that sort of similar physique just a little yes. bit
1: uh, in appearance. That was probably the character honestly I related to the most was Vigo Morrison's weps character. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, he has this conflict of loyalty and it's like, he, he's loyal to Denzel Washington's character Hunter because they're friends. They've served together, but he's also loyal to this captain, which he's served under for so long and trust implicitly. And then you have this, this moment where these two loyalties are at odds with one another. And it's like, who is he going to go with? And I don't think I've ever had a struggle on par with that, but I can completely appreciate being in these, in this situation where you have two people you love and it's like, they want different things and you're stuck in the middle and you have to side with someone. I don't know why there's a gun to your head. Well, I mean a gun was to his head, but <laughs> <laughs> um, you had to side with someone and who are you're going to side with. And I, I appreciated the tragedy of almost like a Julius Caesar uh, Shakespeare play of him betraying his best friend to side with the captain.
0: Yeah, and in that moment, Hunter just sort of walks up to him and looks him in the eye and doesn't say a word and walks off. He just conveys all of the disappointment that oh, he's, yeah. he, he's feeling to Weps in that moment. Mm-hmm. And you see it, and they don't say a word, but he I goes know. up. He sort of gives him the look. And then he walks away, and I can only imagine how
1: much Webbs was hurting in that moment, right I really that's who I related to the most, and yeah, I definitely appreciated Vigo Morrison in this. um I thought he he lent a lot to that character uh, that other actors probably couldn't do
0: right i mean if if I did have to state like a single disappointment with this film, I wish there was a little bit more of a resolution between Webbs and Hunter towards the end of the film
1: yes, I honestly. Like, I've seen this movie definitely a handful of times, if not more. And I had never given a thought to closure to their relationship. It sort of just hangs that they had this standoff, and then you never see them resolve anything. I mean, you see Webs really happy that they didn't have to launch and, like, happy that his friend essentially won the Battle of Philosophies. But you never see them come back together, and I never... I never realized that until watching it this last time. So, yeah, I, I am disappointed in that as well. Yeah, I mean,
0: Webs clearly resolves a conflict within himself mm-hmm. and makes a decision to side with Hunter. So he does go with his older friend, and and that's great for us to witness. But I just wish, considering the last time we saw them together, they had that standoff that I was talking about where you just see the disappointment between the mm-hmm. two men. And so I wish that there had been some sort of at least just face-to-face let's hug it out kind of situation where they didn't even have to say a word. Just, I understood the choice that you made. You understood the choice that I made and we made it through the situation. So let's, let's, let's just move past it. And in my head, I'm going to imagine that's what happened anyways. Happy ending between those two characters. That's fine with me. But yeah, I just wish that we had achieved a little bit more resolution with that. And, you know, since you said you identify with Webs the most, I'll say that Mm -hmm. I probably identified with Hunter the most Something I didn't get to say earlier about Denzel's performance is that he shows both this inner conflict where he's struggling to do to find right and wrong and also to absolutely to make the hard decisions like mm-hmm. Ramsey had told him whenever he was first relieved of his duty. You won't have the guts to make the hard decisions or something to that effect, and mm-hmm. we see that moment in a scene where the hole has been breached. The bilge
1: bay is flooding. Exactly, the
0: bilge bay. Thank you. Uh, It's flooding. And if we don't close it, then we're going to lose the ship. Mm -hmm. And there are still three young men inside that room. And Hunter has to make the decision. He has to make the hard call. Mm -hmm. Okay, we have to seal the door. And that's the hard decision to make. But it's the right decision in this situation. And you see the struggle there. But at the same time, we see those moments of struggle. But we also see the... The moments of firm resolve so Mm -hmm. though he's conflicted in some scenes you also see how steadfast he is in his beliefs and how he stands up for what he believes is correct
1: absolutely and bringing up the overall dynamic between hunter and Ramsey one more time I wouldn't say this quite highlights the correctness of either of them but sort of uh, almost to highlight their character more this time watching the movie like like I said, i watched them several times, and I'm thinking, okay. So they set up in the beginning, Ramsey asks Hunter, almost like in an interview saying, uh, what do you do? What are your hobbies? You paint, ride motorcycles, play an instrument, what? And Hunter says, I ride horses. And they, they have this inner exchange of uh, horse talk, and Hunter essentially says, Arabians is the most powerful horse he's ever ran. And uh, Ramsey said, oh, I could never ride those. Uh, just give me an old paint. And then at the and that's bookended by you're essentially waiting for the emergency action message, recommend alert one, recommend alert one, to uh, come in because Vossler is working on the radio and uh, you're they're waiting and this tense standoff and all of a sudden Ramsey's like, uh, you ever see those Libeson Honor Stallions? And it's way out of left field, but they, they have another conversation about horses and uh, Gina Hackman's character, Ramsey, Says how you know what you just stick a cow prod up a horse's butt and you could get him to deal cards. They're like the most highly trained horses in the world. And so I'm thinking, okay, why of all things, of all things on a sub movie, why is horses the thing? Why? What? There must be some reason behind that. That can't just be random. And what I sort of came to the conclusion is, is that the Arabians represent Hunter as this like powerful, very strong-willed, thinking for himself type of individual. And the Lipids and Honor Stallions represent Ramsey, which is they can be highly trained, very effective, but they're not going to go outside their box of training. And so I don't know if if that if that much thought was given, if it was awesome, because I'm glad I was able to finally discover that. But uh, so I I appreciated that there was even more overtones to these characters or, or ways you could sort of identify with them.
0: Right. And I think the horse conversation also plays into the, the racial conversation that they're having there, too, because the, the what is it? The lip is in, you said mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Th- those horses, they go through this brief conversation where, oh, these are these horses are all white. Mm-hmm. And then D- Hunter says, well, actually, they're born black. Mm-hmm. And I mean, th- I mean, that's very clear racial conversation, I think. I-, I I think that's meant to be interpreted literally in the moment. I don't think that's necessarily like a main focus of the entire film, but mm-hmm. it's it's very clear. I think even from the very beginning that Ramsey does have some prejudice.
1: Really? Huh. See, I don't I don't read that at all. But go ahead, go ahead. I'm curious. I, I, I don't about.
0: think it's blatant, but I do uh-huh. think this is still. I mean, this is mid 90s. Mm-hmm. This is 30 something years after the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. But I mean, even today, we're seeing that not everybody has completely moved on. And yeah. is completely accepting of everybody. And so I think even in that first scene, I, I couldn't place my finger on it. But there was this sort of weird tension in that scene where Ramsey was being cordial in the moment. But I think he was displaying some prejudice against hiring a person of color as a hmm. naval officer, a uh, naval commander. And I think that the horses, especially that lipazin at the end, was the The more blatant representation of racial relations and white and black and abilities of both, and huh. I don't know, maybe I'm reading into that wrong, maybe I'm not, but
1: you know what, that did cross my mind. The whole black and they're not white at birth; they're born black. That definitely crossed my mind. And my like, and I was thinking, is there a race element to this? Because I, I, my personally, I didn't pick up on anything like that. I, I do. Now that you mention it, going back to that interview section, I can sort of see what you're talking about. Like, is there some sort of racial bias because Hunter's because Denzel Washington's black, Hunter's black, and maybe there is. I I I guess I might have to watch this movie anymore. Oh no! Real
0: quick, there's a line that he says, uh, "You were at the top of a recommended list or something," oh, yeah. and then he says. It was a pretty short, sh- list. short list, like yeah. <laughs> sort of minimizing that accomplishment of being at the top of the list. It was a short list. Don't put yourself up on too high of a pedestal because you weren't ahead of a whole lot of people. We were ahead of a couple of people. D- does that make sense? It does. So it was
1: sort of like a backhanded compliment the way I read it in the moment. Yeah. At least. Oh, absolutely. It definitely was backhanded. I took it more to be like, don't, don't think that just because you're at the top of the list, almost like don't be too full of yourself now. Mm -hmm. Because here's why I'm thinking it's not racing and why it's actually Ramsey is way more threatened, feeling threatened by the education of Denzel Washington's character and how he is this man, this renaissance man of higher thought and war theory, whereas Ramsey says that Naval War College is just metallurgy and nuclear reactors, not 19th century philosophy. And so it's almost—it's almost he's threatened by. Why are they sending me this XO? That's like in these manzy pant, manby, pamby, uh, uh disciplines. I need a hardened soldier to to fight with me. I took it as him reacting to that, as opposed to his race. But it could be there. I—I I, that's just my opinion. I, I think probably both is the answer. You know, I no, I think- it's my way, Chad. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, I think there's definitely merit to both, and I think that's Mm -hmm. what's so great about film and having these discussions is that we can sort of tackle what we see in our interpretation of the film and then compare and contrast and maybe not ever come to an answer, but at least the question has been brought up, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So before we go into another sort of more in-depth conversation, uh, let's talk about the music real quick. So, like I said, this is like classic. This is old school Zimmer. This Mm -hmm. is a Zimmer who was more traditional in his approach. You know, nowadays the operative word in a Zimmer score is experimentation because he he's always trying new things for uh, what was it? Man of Steel, he had a 12 man percussion team come together to come up with the driving beats behind the score. And oh, wow, okay. yeah, and Amazing Spider-Man too was I mean, that's a controversial score for a lot of reasons. A lot of people don't like it. I like it just because it's it's different. And that's what Hans Zimmer's always do. He's always pushing the envelope and doing something different. Mm-hmm. Now here in Crimson Tide, there's some elements of difference. There's some electronics use. There are some more traditional scoring techniques. There is some choral stuff, which is really cool. Oh, yeah. But ultimately, it is a rousing, just entertaining score it's, it's 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 in the traditional school i would say yeah. um and it, it very much feels similar to the main theme from top gun too whereas top gun is definitely more 80s and a little bit uh, yeah. more on the electronic yeah. side but there are elements of that here where i can hear the score and i can hear the similarities to top mm-hmm. gun and i can hear maybe tony scott saying you know you know what we did with Top Gun, let's aim for some of that sound, <laughs> but bring your own stuff too to the table, too. And yeah. so I, I really like that this feels traditional, but it's also maybe the beginnings of Hans Zimmer experimenting with new sounds.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you say that it, um, he was looking back to Top Gun because I, I want to say I almost I typically confuse this uh, score by Hans Zimmer with his uh, The Rock score because... Uh-huh. I feel like maybe Michael Bay would say, you know what he did on Crimson Tide? Can we do something (laughs) like that on The Rock? I wouldn't doubt that something like that happened.
0: Well, of course, nowadays, everybody says, hey, composer, how about you make a Hans Zimmer score to this film? And so every score we hear nowadays is just a a Hans Zimmer score. Hans Zimmer, that's just sort of the popular thing nowadays. But this is pre-Pirates. This is pre-Gladiator. This is post-Lion King. So he's hot off the Academy Award for mm-hmm. this score. And so we we get a little bit of traditional stuff and a little bit more of the experimentation stuff at the same time.
1: I, I love the theme to Hans Zimmer. I, unfortunately, can't talk to it in any sort of musical... Vo- I don't have much of a musical vocabulary. Uh-huh. Uh, all I can say is I really like the theme, the main theme of Crimson Tide. I feel like it's... The way I'd put it is it feels both very heroic and also that things are going to be tense. Like this... This is going to be, things are going to, we're going to pull through, but it's not going to be easy. That's, that's the best way I have to describe it.
0: It has its slower and more somber moments, but it also mm-hmm. has
1: its big sort of rousing, energetic
0: dun, moments dun,
1: dun, dun, at the same
0: time. There, There's actually one moment specifically that sounded very much like Pirates of the Caribbean, mm. but I, I didn't really care in the moment just because it, it fit the <laughs> mood. It sounded cool. I I didn't really mind. I I've, I've been critical of Hans Zimmer in the past for having everything sound like Pirates of the Caribbean, but
1: well, it's another boat. It's it's a type It, of it boat. is. <laughs> and uh, uh
0: so I I won't I won't discredit him that because it does work in context. And all the time mm-hmm. when Hans Zimmer does score a film, I think it does work in context. And mm-hmm. so we've got the good mix of traditional electronic choral. There's a couple of moments where uh choral pieces are heard in fact as they're sort of first descending at the beginning of the film we get mm-hmm. a choral version of the hymn eternal father strong to save which is interesting because that's actually the same song that they used in a scene in titanic just a couple years later yes. and it's notable because it contains the line uh those in peril on the sea mm-hmm. and so it's interesting this predates titanic they both use the same song and uh it fits the mood. And if you're paying attention to the lyrics there, if you're not, if you're just, if you're only paying attention to the choral sounds, you're going to miss it. But if you pay attention to the choral lyrics, you're going to hear that sound, those in peril on the sea. And if uh-huh. you weren't expecting it already, you know, that peril is coming.
1: Yep. And it, it's funny that you mentioned the Titanic, because I remember watching Titanic and the thing, I'm like, wait, I've heard this song. I think this is Crimson Tide. <laughs> right. <laughs> I thought it was an original piece for Crimson Tide. I, I mean, back in '95, the internet was not the thing it is now. So you can just look. There was no IMDb, so you can not look that up. Um, but I, I was like, oh, I think I, I maybe this is a hymn or some a different piece of music. But um, apparently, I, I looked this up recently. That that hymn is used by the U.S. Navy as like their not official theme, but that's that's something that they use as like a a main a main piece that they do. And it's actually been adopted by a lot of other, like British Navy and other uh, uh, armed forces. Uh, anything else about the music? Um, just that for things like that, him and just overall, I felt like it was is very true to the movie. It felt like it definitely fit. I think you you kind of alluded to that that Hans Zimmer did this right for this movie.
0: Definitely, and Hans Zimmer is generally pretty good about coming up with the sound for the film and mm-hmm. it, it he definitely did that in this case.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So let's talk about relevance. What what's one of your takeaways from this film?
1: So, this is very this is quite minute, but <laughs> um I would say so I'm fairly deliberate with the words I say I, because of this film. Uh you may not gather that from listening to me on this on your show chat, but uh There's this line that uh, when Hunter is trying to take back the ship from Ramsey, who took it from him, where he calls Weps, uh, Viggo Martinsen's character, and says, don't do this, Weps. Once we launch, they cannot come back. They cannot come back, Weps. And you know the repercussions if we're wrong, expletive. And I very much equated that line, for whatever reason, my neurons are in just the right place, that that line— is always set aside. Okay. What words am I going to use? Am I going to speak life into the person I'm talking to? Am I going to speak death? Am I going to make myself out to just be very unprofessional? If I'm in job setting, I need to keep a rein and make sure I'm saying what I need to say and not saying things that are just like frivolous or what have you, except if I'm on podcasts then I tend to be a, a <laughs> bit more frivolity. Um, so that's just a, a weird little idiosyncrasy I have from watching this movie that I've tied to my own life. So that's one thing. How, how about you? Were there any things that were relevant for you?
0: Well, I think that the idea of war being the ultimate enemy is a fascinating concept. Mm. Um, the, the tension here is what led to the main conflict. It's not the fact that they're going to war that mm-hmm. is the conflict. It's the conflict within the conflict that mm. is the focus of the film. And it's the fear of war that led to disagreement and eventually the quote unquote mutiny. Mm-hmm. And it's just this idea that both men are acting the way they see is correct. yeah. And so you can't fault either of them. Uh-huh. And I mean, we've already talked about this a little bit. And so I don't want to drag it out. But that it's just such a fascinating concept that the movie is having us choose. yes. We know that Denzel is the lead or the hero of the situation. But again, top right, top billing. And <laughs> and at the same time, that doesn't mean that Ramsey is the bad guy. And yep. I, I can't emphasize that enough because though we may show disdain for the character in a couple of scenes, yep. he has valid points. And Hunter had just as much opportunity to be wrong here as Ramsey did hmm. And so I think that's a, a fascinating conflict. And it's something that we can always sort of bring into real life. Look at others viewpoints. This just because your cause is moral and upright as you see it doesn't mean that somebody else's
1: isn't. Yeah. And I want to just take a small step back and say that this movie came out. I think I want to say I would imagine most of the people that went to see this movie. Saw Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which came out in 92. This is again 95. And I think that that movie, have, have you seen T2, Chad? I have not. Oh, dun-dun. I know, dun, I know. Dun-dun, dun-dun, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Have you seen the first one at all?
0: No, I haven't seen any of the Terminator films.
1: So I would recommend the first two. After that, if you really want to see more, then that's fine. But uh, the first two, I, I would re- highly recommend. We, in fact, rated them on my podcast. So if you want to see if we think the Retro Rewind podcast likes them, then you can go listen to those. Anyway. Okay. (laughs) I don't think this spoils too much of the second one, but essentially they show what a nuclear bomb, like landing in a big U.S. city, would look like in a very, very visceral manner. And having that in the back of your mind as a moviegoer at the time, I think lends a lot more weight to these different conversations and to this tension between the characters of like, what happens if they launch at us and we launch at them, our, our birds pass each other in the air and we get nuclear war, no, nuclear holocaust because there's not going to be anyone left to war on. I think this movie is, has it's such a great conversation started about ethics of war and like proportionality is, were we right to drop, were we, the United States, right to drop, the nuclear bomb on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I mean, this movie brings that up and watching this movie again, uh, led me down a YouTube rabbit hole of watching like things on just war, war ethics. And um, apparently Von Clausewitz is an actual author who apparently wrote what is considered the Bible of war ethics, which I had no idea that that was a real thing, but um that's something that's used at like Naval War College and stuff. So I'm like, wow, that's, that's crazy. Um, so I, I, yeah, I love this film for having those deeper conversations and I think it's their conversations we need to have because I think so often we have almost this zero sum game mentality. Again, we being me, I, I really should be singing me. me. I, I don't mean to speak for you, Chad. <laughs> it's like, okay, they're the bad guys over there. And we, the u s us are the good guys, and because you know with freedom and all that, but I think this really helps us take a step back, especially I mean nuclear war is not quite the the threat it is at least to my eyes, it's not, but things like I mean, is it okay to kill someone with a drone? I mean, is that ethical? Are we still the good guys if we're not willing to put ourselves in danger to go and wage war or what have you? And just having these conversations that all our enemies are not bad. They're just other people, and we're all people, kumbaya, so.
0: (laughs) Right. It it raises the question of the righteousness of all kinds of warfare. Yes, And it doesn't necessarily give us an answer, this is bad, this is is good. It's Mm -hmm. just begging us to ask the question, should we? Mm Mm-hmm. And what's the right thing to do in those situations? And so I think as long as somebody walks away from this movie knowing that we should ask the question and not just push the button.
1: Exactly. Yes.
0: Then the film succeeded. And for me, I think it did. I could not agree more with that. Yes. Any other takeaways?
1: Uh, Just the. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of silly, but. I miss movies that came out by Tony Scott, but also that were produced by Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. I thought they were such—I mean, Jerry Bruckheimer's fine on his own. Sadly, Don Simpson passed, and Tony Scott has also passed. But I just thought that was that was a really great team, and uh, so I, I miss the movies that they they put out.
0: Yeah, I think that's a perfectly fine thing to walk away with. I mean, if if you see a good team, you want them to stick together. I mean, Burton and Depp had a good run for a while, at least. I don't know if I'd still mm-hmm. consider them a great team. I kind of <laughs> wish they'd, they'd take a break from each other and then maybe come back in 10 years and continue on from there. But, I mean, you get my point. They, they yeah. There are teams that work really well together. I mean, Christopher Nolan and Hans Zimmer.
1: Oh, yes, exactly. There,
0: there's There's lots of teams I could name where people just gel well together. And I think, mm-hmm. yeah... Simpson, Bruckheimer, Tony Scott, all three of those guys here definitely make a great team.
1: So, yeah, I guess with that, I just would say if you haven't seen Crimson Tide, go watch it. It's it's a, a great movie. If you, I guess if you hate war movies at all, then you may not like it. But uh, if you're a fan of things like Top Gun or if you're a fan of Hunt for October, I'd say this is right up your alley. And conversely, if you've seen Crimson Tide, but not Hunt for October, that's that's another one I'd recommend. But, yeah, this has been a lot of fun, Chad. Thank you.
0: No problem. Um, my final thoughts here, I, I will say there's certainly some depth here. I had to say uh, it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also just a, a good, different kind of war movie. Yes, it's a war movie, but there's mm. no combat action um, no, like hand-to-hand combat, I should say. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it's different in that respect. It's just mm-hmm. a lot of tension and back and forth. It's almost like a chess match when you, we do yeah, have those combat a good way moves. To describe it, yeah, or battleship. Even I mean, mm-hmm. you you call where the opponent is, and you're right or wrong. You hit or miss, yeah. and that's what we get here. It's it's more about what happens inside than
1: what happens outside, and I think that's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, totally. It's it's very much a character-driven movie. I mean, there's definitely a, a plot, but if you're If you're interested in seeing these how how characters work in this different situation that most of us normally aren't in it's it's very fascinating to to watch right. There's
0: good suspense, there's good character moments, and there's just a great traditional Zimmer score. So if yes. you're interested in <laughs> if if nothing else, hearing a good old-fashioned Zimmer score in context, this is a great movie a great opportunity for that indeed. With that, that is the end of the official 17th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much, Francisco, for being on the show.
1: Thank you, Chad. It was such a treat to be on Cinescope. So thank you so much for letting me be on.
0: No problem. Contact for the show is facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Again, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes and email feedback and ideas to the Cinescope podcast at gmail.com. And you can also use that email address to contact regarding co-hosting. That is what Francisco here did. He emailed me back at the end of September. I said, hey, I'd love to have you on the show. I'll fit you in sometime. And so open space came up and here you are.
1: Here I am indeed.
0: And you introduced me to a great film. So, I mean, it doesn't have to be a film that you think I know or know that I know or anything like that. If you have a film that you love to talk about, then definitely email me, let me know. Hit me up on Twitter, on Facebook and tell me what film you're interested in talking about. And we will fit you in some way, somehow, sometime,
1: somewhere in some dimension. And I want to take a quick moment to speak to anyone who's like, "Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'd have something to say about this movie. I really love, but would I be any good? I mean, I, I don't know you personally, who, whoever's listening, but Chad does a great job of getting you prepped with, like the notes you need, to the stuff you need to prepare for, and just making sure you're you're gonna be able to talk about this whatever movie it is that you love. So don't be worried that you're gonna have to come in cold and just be completely flustered about what to do. I was a little worried, then then I then he sent me his note, his sort of outline. I'm like, oh, okay, I can do this. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I was helpful.
0: Uh, I, I try and, and be as accommodating as I can because I know how stressful it can be to maybe talk to a new person or Mm -hmm. to do something new or anything like that. So I'm, I mean, I edit the show. So if there are hiccups in the conversation, then we can always change those out, switch those out, whatever it takes to make you feel most comfortable. That's what I'm interested in doing. So again, if you're interested, if you love a film, if you love talking about films, let me know and we will get you on this show. Francisco, where can people find you online?
1: Uh, So you can find my personal Twitter is at at F-X-R-U-I-Z-X. Um, but you can also find me on the Retro Rewind Podcast uh, Twitter, which is Retro Rewind Podcast, or, at Retro Rewind Pod. Um, and you can find me at RetroRewindPodcast.com. That's where I do my show with my uh, good friend and co-host, Paul Powers. Um, I want to just recommend, if you uh, liked Crimson Tide, and you also enjoyed listening to me, uh, hopefully, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, talk about a uh, Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer movie. Uh, we, ra- we reviewed The Rock, which we brought up briefly uh, in this talk. And that's at uh, retrorewindpodcast.com slash 91 if you're interested in hearing our thoughts about that Michael Bay movie.
0: Right, and definitely go check out his podcast. I'm planning on downloading a few episodes in the very near future, so I can listen myself. But looking through, there's so many cool episodes on. I mean, you're past a hundred episodes now, right, or cl- mm-hmm. close to it. And so th- there's a wide variety of films from the past and video games and all that good stuff that you can check out if you're interested in anything from that time period. And I'm sure it's great conversations if it's anything like what we just did
1: yeah we have a lot of fun doing and and you can um try to plug myself one more time but you can also vote on the movies that you want us like we have a whole list of movies where anyone who can go to it and vote up and down the movies they want us to cover so the ones that get to the top of the list are the ones we cover first
0: awesome that sounds like a cool system yeah well the best place to find me on twitter is at chadadada. that is c-h-a-d-a-d-a-d-a and on facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And all the show notes, all the contact information, the links to Francisco's podcast, and to anything else that you can think of that we talked about on the show, go to thecinescopepodcast.com.
1: And that is all for this week.
0: Thank you once again, Francisco. It's been fun. It's been a lot of fun having you on the show tonight.
1: Thank you, Chad. It's been awesome being here.
0: Yes, and we'll definitely maybe try and have you on sometime again in the future to talk about some other old
1: school movie. We'll see. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. (laughs) Just maybe. We'll see.
0: (laughs) I, I would certainly be open to it. Thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 17, and I hope that all of you U.S. listeners have a fantastic Thanksgiving this week. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 18. Have fun and celebrate movies.